Fi Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at FiSpan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a leading thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune into Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in and listening to this episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm super excited to have Jake Tyler with us. He is the co-founder and CEO of Fin.ai, which has a lot of the same, I guess, letters in it as uh, my company's name. So it's, I have been accused of working for you before, Jake. Super excited to talk to Jake because I think he's been effectively on like a five or six year worldwide tour of working with banks um, all over the globe, uh, trying to bring about kind of the, a, a future of the way banks are going to interact with and, and serve their clients. And that's why I invited him on the show. In addition to his remarkably charming accent. Uh, Jake, did I leave anything out? No, thank you for the charming accent. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd, I'd advise the global tour thing um, uh, as, a, as a lifestyle strategy, but it was a lot of fun at the time. Um, yeah, great to be here. Excited to jump in. How long on that note? Because I think like one of your very first customers was in, was in South Africa, right? Yeah. How do you get there from Vancouver, Canada? It must be a journey. Well, yeah, it, it is a journey. Yeah, I, uh, I, I once flew to, um, we have a customer in Germany. So I once flew to Munich for a one hour meeting and came home straight away. So that was probably my stupidest trip. Um, but I, we, we, uh, when we started, we were definitely at the innovation stage of the market. And um, I always, oh, I've lived in a whole bunch of different countries. So I always thought about building a big global company out of the box or an international company. And we, we essentially took deals wherever we could get them. So we had a deal in LATAM in Central America. We had a deal in South Africa. Uh, and I was in Asia quite a lot selling. And then we were in North America a bit. I was also in Europe. We ended up selling a deal in Europe. And I spent quite a lot of time in Australia, which is where I'm from, also trying to sell deals there. In hindsight, we probably should have just spent more time in North America. But I think the challenge is North America is a bit of a laggard on the innovation side sometimes. And, you know, to get the fire started, sometimes you need to just just go where it is. Totally makes sense. So maybe, I, I mean, I, I, maybe that was the whole le- lesson from that. But I mean, spending all that time around the globe, could you maybe characterize that? Like even maybe ranking kind of continent by continent where you think the banks are maybe the most aggressive on on kind of innovation? I, I think in general, Asia does a much better job of digital than in North America and Europe. Europe has a bit of a different flavor to North America. Um, Australia is, a, from my perspective, a much more advanced um, ecosystem in the banking technology world than Canada or the US. And so there's a lot that we can learn there. In our world, on the like virtual assistant chatbot space, we saw adoption happening much faster in Asia to start with. And then happening at banks that were a bit more innovative. So in some cases, you just, we just had to pick and choose in different regions. But again, mostly that was not in North America. And so that's why we, you know, we jumped on a plane and flew out there. A little harder to do right now. <laughs> yeah, the world feels a little bit bigger yeah. uh, these days um, than, than it once did. So that's, a, I mean, that kind of the global aspect, I think, of the 
at the foundation of fin.ai is really interesting. Something that's interesting to to me, and it's in some ways similar. So, um, you know, my partner, Faisal Lisa, her first business was certainly a kind of direct to consumer. I mean, it was direct to businesses in hyperwallet, and kind of in round two went to this like you know, infrastructure play, kind of this arms dealer play supporting the banks. And I think that's in some ways sim similar to, to your experience as well, right? You, when we first met, you were, you had a peer-to-peer -peer payment service, right? That you were, you were running. Right. So the, the, that's right. So we had a product that was like Venmo um, or Square Cash, or um, you can now do it in Facebook Messenger and Apple. Um, yeah. This was like six years ago. So it was a bit cooler and more innovative back then. But mm -hmm. our idea was, it was essentially like WhatsApp plus money. So a messaging app that you could send money to people. And we were very focused on the Canadian market. So our goal was to be the winner here. And what we, I think like many uh, fintech companies, the and I think this continues to play out today, but the challenge, we ran into um, a challenge around things that are just very hard to do and continue to be hard to do, which is win customers and deal with the regulated aspects of holding people's money. But we liked our consumer problem. You know, it is hard, it remains hard to send money to a friend in Canada. It's a sort of crappy bit of infrastructure that we all use. And six years ago, we all had to pay $1.50 to do it every time. So it was a bit crazy. So we were looking for ways that we could continue to solve the consumer problem without having to deal with these tricky distribution and regulated uh, issues. And, and that's why we moved to being an enterprise company. And, uh, and then being an enterprise company also meant we didn't have to be sort of stuck selling just in Canada. We could sell in the US, which is obviously our, our biggest neighbor market. Plus, I could jump on a plane to South Africa and sell it there as well. No, absolutely. And I, I think that's what I always struggle with this whole, you know, whenever you get the like, you know, banks are going to go away kind of narrative. Certainly some banks are going to go away, but the it always, I think always as an outsider to financial services, it's easy to underestimate the difficulty of like gaining distribution at any kind of economic manner. It is hard. Yeah, it, it, it is very hard to gain distribution. Now, I think the thing that's sort of changed since then is that you've, it's become a lot easier to do the regulated part of it. There's a lot more banking as a service platforms now, which often were consumer plays that then tried to look for an uh, enterprise model. The distribution thing is still hard, but then you bring in people who already have a lot of distribution, insurance companies, Google, uh, you know, other big companies like that are now looking to bolt on banking. So I think that's not good for people like us who are trying to like do both things at once with a small amount of venture money. It opens up a big enterprise opportunity. And then I think like there's a lot of big fish in the market now. Yeah. And we'll see more that combination of banking as a service plus people who already have lots of users. I think will change the market. Uh, totally. And it, ma it makes a ton of opportunity on both sides of that trade, right? The kind of server side on the banking service and on the customer experience application side, but without the challenge of, I mean, effectively you had to kind of build your own full stack in, right. you know, doing this in 2014, 2013. We had to do both yeah. and, uh, and then convince investors to give us lots of money for a business idea that didn't have a revenue model attached to it yet. So there are lots of flaws to our plan. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then also doing it in Canada was not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's not, uh, it's not that big of a market. So anyway, we learned a lot in that process and, um, I like the enterprise world a lot more. Um, you know, one, I think it's a, it's a big global opportunity, but it, it lets us focus on the things that we really like to do, which is the product and not have to deal with the parts of it that, um, 
other people do a great job of. Totally. So on that note, why don't we pivot to kind of the core of this? And and I mean, this is a, I think the full disclosure to the the reader. Obviously, this could get so, so, probably somewhat biased with how you're going to run your bank. But um, you want to take us through that? What what would you be kind of all in on if you had a bank of your very own? Right. So I mean, um, the thing that I know most about is virtual assistants. So that's the thing that I pick just because I'm probably most, that's the place where I can have the most interesting conversation. Obviously, I, um, I've i drunk the Kool-Aid on virtual assistants. So maybe I can share why, yeah. and then we can dig in a bit. I mean, I, I, I so I'd go all in on virtual assistants as a new banking experience. Um, it As the default experience, it, as the default digital banking experience. And this this is really for retail banking. So for you and me, for our bank or credit union that, that we um, we have our money with. Um, and so I think it makes sense that we have a virtual personal banker for everybody. If you want to get something done, you just talk to your virtual personal banker. You just ask her what you want to get done and you get that done. Um, and plus that the experience is personalized to you. So it's, it's your virtual personal banker. Um, and it's also monitoring your transactions your balances and nudging and coaching you to make better financial decisions. So maybe it sends you a nudge to pay your bill on time, to pay down your credit card, to move some money to savings. These are the sorts of things that I think are possible to do today that add a significant amount of value above what I get when I log into Scotiabank or RBC or whoever I, you know, I might be banking with here in Canada today. So that's, that's what I go all in on. And I think it, it, solves, you know, it solves two big challenges. One, um, lots of people are complacent. Well, like I, you know, banking and finance is complicated, and there's lots of products. It's not always clear how the products work. Banks have a, a lot of them. There's lots of terms and conditions, and there's all sorts of strange, weird, and wonderful jargon that I'm still learning. Um, and in the past, you could sort of get around some of this complexity by walking into the branch, um, asking somebody what what you for something, and they would guide you through the process. As we go into the digital world, we tried to move these things over to digital, and I think we lost the benefit of that personalized, very simple, intuitive user experience, which is you just ask for something and you can get it done. And so I think a virtual assistant brings a lot of that back, but still gets the benefits of digital. Totally makes sense. And so two sort of questions, I guess, sitting on the banker side of the table on this, or I mean, maybe not just you know for general interest of the audience. So. What's the right way to think about this? From my perspective, this launch, these kinds of things launched as a feature of kind of online and mobile banking as a channel. But my sense is that from your perspective, this is its own unique channel or will be its own unique channel. And, and maybe in some cases will be the primary servicing channel for a lot of retail product, banking product consumption. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I don't think it's that controversial of an idea. So if you look at Bank of America with Erica, the, the Erica virtual assistant is the primary banking experience in mobile. I think they have 15 million active users of Erica at the moment. So uh, you can see Capital One with Eno moving in that direction. You know, It wouldn't be a top 15, top 30 US retail bank without a major virtual assistant chatbot project. So if it's not happening already, um, it, it is, likely to happen in the next year or two at most major banks. I think the, the sort of mid-market regional banks and credit unions are playing catch up. But yeah, chatbots and you know, virtual assistants started as being basic FAQ 
on an unauthenticated.com. And, you know, they can only, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, what I'm talking about is a virtual personal banker that lives in the authenticated environment. You can get all your transactional stuff done, plus it's nudging and coaching and guiding you to make better financial decisions. And um, so I think, you know, that's a fundamental difference to where we started at the tip of the hype cycle in like 2017. But that was really a pretty thin version of what chatbots could do. I think, and I, you know, I have this experience with uh, Siri all the time. I don't want to get sued for slander. I've always kind of hated Siri. I didn't think she was that good at her job. But I got a pair of AirPods recently, and I found that some combination of her getting a little bit better every day for eight years or whatever, and that her kind of con being consumed in the native experience, which is the AirPods, all of a sudden she was really good and did all this stuff and understood everything and like actually made my life better, right? But I had kind of written it off at some point yeah. and just checked, check, having to check back in. I think that's probably this from the proto kind of chatbot world to today and more importantly, you know, next year and the year after, you might even have missed that that leap to it doing things and not just being this text IVR kind of experience. Yeah, and um, so I have a Pixel phone and I use Google Assistant and Google Assistant's way better. Uh, um, it's just more useful. So one, the text, speech to text got great. So it's, it's good now, even with my funny accent, it works. Um, and so, so I think you can use your AirPods and you can sort of get things done. Um, I think the, the, we still think of the primary sort of virtual assistant experience mostly being um, GUI based, so text based. Te for me, messaging is the killer app on mobile. We all message all the time. And the benefit of having, being able to show someone a menu or an image or a sort of selector or a slider, you can just do way more with that than you can in a voice interface. Um, also, or maybe some combination of both. Um, uh, and I think the thing that really changed for both Siri and Google Assistant was the, the like natural language side of things got a bit better. Um, but really, they can just they just added more integrations on the back end. So there's more apps in Siri. It's more capable. You, you know, it's not just something you use for Spotify anymore. You can actually you know get stuff done. And that, that's exactly the same reason why virtual assistants are at a more mature stage, a more valuable stage for banks and credit unions. Cause you can, as you plug them into the bank, you can actually get meaningful stuff done. Totally agree. And I, I really agree on the kind of text-based thing. I feel that way. Just kind of using the voice one as an analogy for how severe the progress had, had been. Um, but totally agree. But on that note, I think the technology has gotten better, but it probably fundamentally starts to change. I'm guessing how you would make a business case for this as a banker, I'm guessing in, you know, 2016, 2017, when you're showing up, it's probably driven by like call center diversion type stuff. Was that what would dr have driven the business case then? Whereas it sounds like this is a different world that could have very different value drivers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in 2016, 2017, the primary value driver was innovation. Yeah. And so these were all innovation experiments back then. I, I'm sure somebody came up with a business case at some stage for some projects, but um, I, I doubt the product hit that business case, at least in the first year or two. I think now when banks are getting into it, it's a product that works, that, that can work at least, uh, depending on how you implement it, and can deliver value. Um, I still think it, it is very hard to get things done in online banking and mobile banking still. 
And it would be much easier if you could just ask to do it. Um, about 80% of people who call in tried to self-serve first, which means they're, then certainly I'm one of those people. So I try to do something in online banking, get frustrated, then I call you up. So much better to have, um, for me to be able to just ask in online banking or mobile banking using simple natural language. So I still think that core use case of great self-service 24 seven for simple routine things that are well-suited for a bot. If I can deliver end-to-end -end journeys within the assistant, uh, there is a very, very significant amount of value there. Um, so I think that's the foundational layer. And then on top of that, what you're seeing people like Erica um, Capital One with Eno Do and others in the market is add in um, nudges and insights on top of that. So it's really, you know, um, starting to build a, a deeper, more personal relationship with you, the consumer, by, you know, adding a lot of, you know, value on top of just the, the basic banking. Totally. And that, that's always blown my mind, right, about online banking is like your goal and the bank's goal are super aligned, which is to just get this done without talking to somebody on the phone. But it, like you say, quite often is not possible. You're not super happy waiting and hold to talk to somebody and they're not super happy about the cost of servicing you through that channel. It's kind of this just massive deadweight loss to society. So Yeah, and I, I think there's a bit of a, um, you know, particularly in the uh, regional bank and credit union space, I think there's a misconception that having lots of agents on the phone or lots of branches equals good service. And I mean, it is absolutely true that there are some times when you want to chat to a human, but 100%. And you, we like the goal should be identify those, get you to a human, the right human, the right person at the right time, and empower that person to help you out. But um, at least in, in our research, we think around two thirds of interactions in the call center are routine, simple things that people want to self service for. Um, uh, you know, whether it's putting a hold on your credit card, um, ordering new checks, um, or even like the simple things like paying bills and checking balances and things like that. So the, the bulk of volume is simple routine things that people want to self-serve for. They're often trying to self-serve. They just can't for whatever reason. And then they end up in the call center stuck on hold. Yeah, no, to totally makes sense to me couple things, but one is that's kind of curious, you know, when you've referenced, you know, uh, Bank of America's Erica as kind of being best in class, it's interesting because that's the biggest of the big, you know, amongst the biggest of the big and the oldest of the old school banks, right? Which is, it's cool that they've kind of gone all in on that and made the investment. I, I would have assumed that potentially some of these like, you know, neobank kind of digital native type players would you know, be the case study on some of those stuff that they would have went all in on that. Is that, is that true? Is there anybody in that space that like, you know, cause it, if you're starting from scratch, you know, fundamentally re-envisioning how you kind of service and, and make this stuff available would, would seem obvious to me. Yeah. I think um, the reality is certainly, and it certainly was the case when Bank of America started is that the, um, the amount of money you need to invest to get something like this working well, is uh, is significant. So, uh, you know, Bank of America's investment has been above tens of billions. So, uh, a very significant investment. If you're a digital bank, you, you don't have that budget at all. The, the, but you do have a simpler product and probably a better um, digital product. But I think that's one of the reasons why Bank of America has done um, 
is a leading example of a product like this is because they went in very hard very early and um, they're now sort of reaping the benefits. Certainly through COVID, you can see the use of their product has you know, gone up very significantly. It's been a major asset for them. In the digital banking space, I think the, the, the and then the same for regional banks and credit unions, the challenge has been, how do I train the language model to understand banking queries? Um, because they were starting at scratch and you know they don't have five, 10 million plus dollars to spend on data scientists training it up. And so that's part of the problem that, and now I think you have a wave of vendors, including ourselves, who help to solve that problem with a product that works. Um, and in the same, by the same token, you have a wave of vendors like Personetics and MX who can solve the problem of um, personalized insights as well. And, and then better um, tools like Glia, for example, who can help to um, connect you to a live agent through you know, video and other places when you do need to hand over to a live agent. So I think the, there's a combination of, you know, if we tried this three or four years ago, it would have been very hard and expensive. Um, and that's part of why Bank of America um, was early in. But, uh, but now I think it's much more accessible, sort of democratized through a more mature vendor ecosystem. So yeah, no, and that makes sense. So, so the explosion of kind of, you know, complementary or core platform technologies to this, um, and vendors is both going to bring this into the long tail of the bank market, but is also hype that is just going to rise, like make the quality of everybody's product better right. because there's all these off the shelf complementary things. Yeah. If you're, if you're building it now, do you really need to train, you know, in our space in particular, do you need to train your own language model to understand banking queries? No, you don't like you, 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 that's going to cost you tens of millions of dollars. Um, so what, why would you do that? Uh, I think you'd have to take a long, hard look at that. And the same with, I think, some of the insights side of things. And I think the same with um, the call center platforms, where there's much better options on the table now than there were three or four years ago when they primarily would have been yeah. um, phone. No, to totally. Um, just a quick question, just curious. I don't know if you actually get really a good sense of this data. Um, what, what is the like penetration by kind of age groups? I think everybody would stereotypically probably assume that this, the, like the usage and consumption on these trends young, but is it, is it more wide based with the banks you're live in? Do. Yeah. I mean, um, I think pre COVID it was definitely young and that was the same for digital adoption as it was adoption of virtual assistants and adoption of like neo banks and, um, just digital in general. I think the like there's a lot of super interesting data from McKinsey and others on digital adoption post COVID. So the people who really didn't want to go into a branch anymore were older older groups. Um, and that you know so the, the digital adoption there in the last six months has been massive, and that's not going to go away. You know I think once people learn these new digital skills, they're not going to unlearn them. And um, you've probably had many years of digital adoption happened in a space of five months or something. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, th I think that's closed the gap a lot. And I will say like the benefit of like, you know, my grandparents text me, they, they may not be, you know, playing Fortnite all the time or like doing other complicated digital stuff on their laptops and computers, but they can text me 
And I think it's just a very simple intuitive, like the, the key is making it a very simple intuitive interface that really anybody can use. I, I would agree. I think that's the right, right principle. And it'll be interesting to see how that changes over time with the adoption. So I guess the other kind of question then around like the counterintuitive audience for this, I, I know you sort of downplay, like you said, the primary part of this is business, but I know to some extent, again, going back to that Eric product, I know to some extent they put that in front of businesses. At Bank of America, it strikes me as not obvious as maybe a primary servicing channel the way it would be for you know what you do as an individual, but that intersection of true virtual assistant of kind of like you know automated text-based interaction, insights, those things. I mean, it does strike me as there are val really meaningful and high leverage value propositions for businesses at, and maybe different value propositions for businesses of different sizes, but it strikes me as possibly part of how you would serve that audience in the future too. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the, the interface still works for businesses. Certainly, I think like the, well, being able to get things done by just asking is a much easier interface. You've got to figure out exactly how to make it work. On the insights and nudges side, there's a huge opportunity there. And like for small business, as an example, like I, we, you know, I sort of run a small business, um, small and mid-sized business. It would be great if my accounting software gave me nudges or bank gave me nudges on um, you know, actions I could take. Um, that would be awesome. Um, I think the challenge in the business space, for at least from our side of the fence, um, on the language understanding side is that the the queries are often a lot more complicated and the volume is less. So the amount of data you have is a lot less and the um, sort of long tail or like what people ask is normally spread over. It's a much wider variety of um, things. And so it's just harder from a language understanding perspective to do an awesome job on the business side. And so that's why I think you tend to see simpler, more button menu driven applications in that side than you do. That's also why like Alexa sort of works mostly for things that everybody does all of the time. And, you know, they spend billions of dollars on that product to make it work. So it's like, it's not for that, that you need, you need to pick the right use cases to have something that works still with the technology. No, totally. And on that note, I mean, you said earlier, obviously, the, the theme of kind of these couple of businesses that you've started has been around solving, you know, trying to make, I guess, financial services easier, more accessible for a better experience, more delightful experience for people. What, like, when did you know that, that was what was going to kind of be a big part of your life's work? Like, how did you know you were all in on that? Yeah, I, I mean, my angle has always been scratching a personal itch, which is I find banking and dealing with my money to be very frustrating as a user experience. And so I've always sort of come at this as a, through that angle. So the initial idea was, was we were an app to help people share money or share expenses, mostly focused on group travel. That was our, um, that was our, our key sort of use case at the time. And it was like, I don't know, if you still go on a group trip and then have to split a bill at the end of it, it's a pain in the backside. And like that problem has not been solved in any way. And so, so that, that's how, that's the angle we came at it. And then today we've sort of evolved that and are trying to think of how you interact with a much wider variety of services at the bank, but still in a way that's you know, super easy and simple. And to totally. And just finally, and I mean, you hinted at one of these earlier, but what's the, what's maybe the dumbest thing you've ever done that later turned out to be a good idea? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's probably this, I mean, it's this business for sure. Um, and I think the yeah, the first iteration was this app, as I said, that was designed to help people share expenses. Um, that, uh, that wasn't a particularly good idea. I mean, certainly not a very good business idea. Um, and then I put all my eggs in that basket and I moved, I was living in Europe. I moved to Canada. I found someone else who was committed and wanted to do it with me. And we put like work for no money, put our own personal money in it. Um, and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't uh, an awesome idea. I think the silver lining in it was there's a lot of benefit in being super committed and as a learning process and you get into it and you discover other things. And so we were able to, I was able to find other people who were equally as committed to at the time, like maybe not the best of ideas, but then, you know, we, we were able to figure out, uh, understand, have, have a deep domain knowledge and sort of understand the space and, and iterate and, and move on to the next thing. So yeah, you were maybe on the, headed to the wrong destination, but it got you on the right journey. We were naive and extremely committed to maybe not the best idea, um, but I think the act of being extremely committed is the silver lining, and being naive is probably your most valuable asset in the startup world. Yeah, no, I, I funct functionally naive. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's no shortage of people who are industry experts who will tell you that you can't do it, but they they never would try, and I think it's part of. Part of what you got to do. That's a, I think that's an awesome note to to end on, Jake. I mean, just to I guess to kind of sum this up, um, you know, I think the core of what we talked about today is that uh, you know this idea that maybe started you know four and five six years ago as a bit of probably its first role in the world was a, as a little piece of innovation theater, and this has really marched towards a world where this you know virtual assistant kind of experience is a very powerful banking channel of its own is a easy, delightful way to solve real problems and remove real friction for users. And is sounds like it's kind of only something that's going to grow in the extent of the kinds of problems it can resolve and the kinds of like things it can do for you. So is that, is that a fair kind of summation of, of the combo? Yeah, well, we're, we're excited about the future. I think we're just at the stage now where, you know, there's a, a combination of technology both what we do and other vendors and where banks are at, that means that this is now sort of readily available, can deliver meaningful value at scale for um, most banks and credit unions. And so, you know, that that's, a, that's an exciting place to be and I look forward to seeing where this goes over the next year or two. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate, I guess, everybody uh, beyond just my mom who's listening to the podcast. Um, thanks as always. And, and for everybody, uh, you know, check us out on I think fivespan.com. Uh, if I ran the bank page is on there and you can always subscribe on Spotify and Apple podcast um, and uh, tune in next time.